Hey everyone, hope you're all having a great summer. I'm Brandon, Director of Marketing at the Smart Center, welcoming you back to another episode of Unspoken Words, a selective mutism podcast hosted by Dr. Elisa Chapon Blum. The team and I are planning some awesome episodes for later this summer and for the fall, but in the meantime, we want to repost one of our most popular episodes of the podcast this week. It was released about 11 months ago last September in the episode Dr. E and Smart Center lead clinician Jennifer Brittingham discuss all things back to school. So from preparing your child or teen and their teacher for the year ahead to comfort building strategies that help with the progression of communication to how to educate the school in general, even to determining IEP and 504 plans. This episode has a ton of actionable information for you to bring into this upcoming school year. So without further ado, Please enjoy one of our most popular episodes of the podcast to date, Back to School. Hey, Jennifer, how are you? Hi, Dr. E. I'm doing great. How are you? Good. I want you to give a brief intro of who you are. (laughs) Okay, so... Um, As you said, I'm Jennifer Brittingham. I am one of the providers at the Smart Center. Um, So I do evaluations and treat children and meet with families um, to help with selective mutism. But I am also one of the main school consultants at the center as well. So I do a lot of school trainings, um, meetings with staff, professional development. Um, Educating school is a big part um, of what I love at the Smart Center. That's awesome. And you've been with the Smart Center for feels like a hundred years, I always say, but it's been for many, many years, probably since like 2005. So that's a long time that we've been together. <laughs> we have. We're, we're, we're clicking on days together. That's right. Clicking on almost double decades. We're getting there. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So again, we're going to talk about preparing the child and teen with selective mutism for the upcoming school year. And I figured I'd ask you just some questions. A lot of questions come into the center on a regular basis. You consult with the school often. I consult with the school. So we're really working with the school almost half our week is educating school professionals and um, working with families and helping kids adapt and uh, make progress within the school environment. So one of the first questions I'd say to you, Jen, when you're working with families and talking with schools How do you suggest parents help prepare their child for school? Okay, so that's there's a lot of information that can be given there, but I'll I'll give you a couple things. Um, One, a simple thing for preparing for school that I think sometimes parents underestimate is most parents have access to school and classmates over the summer. Now, not to say it's easy to schedule time to meet up, but for instance, before school begins, we can do some preparation to help our kids get more comfortable um, with the transition back to school. So a few things could be if you know some classmates, you know, that a few times during the summer we can meet up with um, to hang out with, have a play date, engage in communication. That's one really helpful way. A second before school even begins that really is just for parents can take ownership of is hit the school playground if you have that age of a child that you can bring siblings and play on the school playground. So you're on site, whether you're riding your bike, whether you're riding your scooter around the school playground, um, playing games, having snacks, playing soccer, shooting hoops, all those things help our kids come back onto school grounds, gain some comfort and communication. For a lot of my teens, I might suggest doing exercise. So like walk, run the track, 
um, go with parents to walk after dinner, just to walk and talk around the school. Um, and some of them are preparing for driving. And I'll say, do your driving lessons on school grounds. All those things are just a simple way of getting your child back onto school grounds to get acclimated. And that really doesn't involve the school at that point yet. No, that's excellent. That's, I agree completely. And one thing I say is I call it walk the halls. Once we do have access to the classrooms, I suggest to families, walk the halls. Just go in nonchalantly. Ideally, bring a buddy. If you do have a buddy, like walk the halls. Try to get a list from the school of the different classrooms that your child will be in. Visit them nonchalantly. Hey, we're just going to check out the school. It's not that you have to sit and tell your child, we're going to check out the school so it can help you begin to talk in school. We don't want to do that at all. We just want to focus on comfort, comfort, getting ready, just kind of seeing it in a nonchalant way. Um, in an ideal world, if we know some of the teachers, one of the things I recommend is connecting with the teachers, you know, emailing the teachers, the parents, and seeing when they're setting up the classroom and go in. And again, nonchalant, it's a great way to do fade-ins when the parent's there with a buddy and a child, maybe a sibling, the teacher comes in. For As children get older, I usually recommend that they're aware of this very much. They might be doing back-to-school interview questions, which we give them, and we can go over that as well. But I like that term, walk the halls. It's kind of like an easy term that families can relate to, because I think you know me. I'm always about coming up with quick terms that resonate Catchy. with people. Yeah. yeah. Like, don't There's, wait, facilitate. <laughs> that's right. And, you know, you brought us something that I think is important. Sometimes we go into the school year. I mean, parents are often really anxious um, as the school year approaches, and we think we need to get in right away and begin to communicate with the teacher. And that's important. We want to set up structure time with the teacher. But as you're noting, that walk the halls piece or coming onto school grounds, casually coming into school, those are really nonchalant, informal, easygoing ways to still build comfort. So imagine you're coming into the school where we don't have to tax the teacher right away in terms of give me time to meet with my child or meet with our family several times before the school year starts. Just having access to can we come in? We might just breeze by the classroom, say a quick hello, but we're just moving through the halls, checking out the gym, things that might have changed. If there are teachers or staff, being able to come in, say a quick hello, and just acclimate. Um, for some of our teens, they may not, they may or may not want to do that as they're coming through. But a quick solution of instead of walk the halls would be things like if we have younger siblings that are coming into a school that our sibling, our older child with SM could be in charge of walking them through the hallway to get acclimated or even just bringing materials, paperwork, things to drop off at the office are all some of these informal and casual ways for our families and kids to begin to build comfort. But you said interview questions, which brings me to the structured piece. There are certain things that are really important to bring structure into the school year. So at some point, we do want to have a meeting with the school teacher. We want to reach out. We want to ask who are my teachers um, and be able to come in and meet them, carve out some time. So a piece that is important for all of our kids, there are orientation nights or back to school nights for, let's say, our, our younger grades that they can come in and, and meet their teachers. Usually that's what we call the three L's, right? The large, loud, lots of people environments. And yeah. That's overwhelming for many of our kids to come in because you've got the classmates, a new environment, new kids, all the parents, sometimes siblings, too. That is a large group, and that can be overwhelming. So if we feel that um, we really want to help our kids to engage with the teachers, that sometimes isn't the best environment for our kids to begin that process. So it's really helpful to request time prior to that 
that orientation night or back to school night so that your child gets a chance to come in. And like you said, bring a buddy or bring a sibling. So the focus is not completely on on your child. And whether it's coming in and just getting acclimated to the classroom very loosely, having the teacher engage um, your your child uh, in loose conversation, what we call common questions about the summer. So questions like, how was your summer? Did you go on vacation? Where did you go? Did you go to camp? So walking through some of those common summer questions are really important. But having a purpose of being there can be helpful, too. Sometimes teachers will agree to have our our clients and a, and a buddy or a sibling come in and help set up the classroom, pick their seat ahead of time, put their supplies away in advance. And that can be really helpful to better acclimate our clients to the classroom environment before the big group comes in. Oh, excellent points. One thing that you keep saying in a kind of a different way is the need for control. And one thing I would say that's a big part of what we do through treatment is, and the big part of SCAT, social communication anxiety treatment, is giving control to the child or teen. Because when they feel in control, it lowers their anxiety. Going to the school, seeing what, where, and when. Where are their classes? Looking, walking the halls to even their schedule, knowing when they're going to be in certain places. But the buddy process, comfort precedes communication, buddies, connection. They may not know their buddies right away. Let's say they're going into a new school. They're starting kindergarten or they're starting middle school or they're starting high school. It's a brand new school. We may not know who those buddies are. Of course, that's even more reason we have to visit the school and kind of check it out. But during the beginning of the school year, um, always I always recommend that parents connect with the teachers, obviously, prior. But to help have the teachers help you figure out who would be good buddies. So often in younger kids, it, it could see it could work with parents being connected through other parents. Like it's easy to have playdates that way, but it might be an interest. And as kids get older, that interest is important. For example, I remember with my own daughter Sophie, um, she didn't have selective mutism when she went to middle school. But like a lot of children, you know, going into middle school is really rough. I mean, SM or not SM, that's a huge transition. So much is happening to children. And I remember Sophie bonding with one of uh, her friends that was really interested in science. And to this day, they're still best friends because that connection, being in a science club, being in a math club, really connecting through areas of interest. So even if they don't know the buddies, I know I'm getting kind of off task, but I'm mentioning it because they don't always know buddies. And that's why the beginning of the school year is going to be really important. And I loved what you said about common questions. I mean, a big part of Again, what we need to do is help kids get ready for, minimize their need to think and process, what questions are going to be asked, being on the lookout, giving them interview questions, things they can check off. And one thing that we haven't talked a lot about, I know my other podcasts talk a lot about it, is the bridge and their stages of social communication. So it's really important that we're aware of the child's baseline stage of communication as they're moving into the school year. Now, obviously, they may be bridging down at the start of the school year as they're acclimating, assessing the situation. So knowing how to bridge up, what strategies to use, parents acting as an intermediary, um, teachers asking questions, parents knowing how to bring the child into uh, verbal communication, um, even using the interview or even the write and read. Um, Just reading questions for some kids is a way for them to speak and um, be aware. So again, respecting the bridge and where their stages are, the whys of SM, that's all important in terms of just getting them ready for for school. And, um, well, you, you know, it's you, interesting. Yeah. Oh, so you brought up a really good point about the whole idea of control. I want to touch on that because sometimes we 
we look at giving kids like knowing their schedule, knowing what classes and preparing them. We do a lot of work with a lot of elementary schools, but there's so many of our clients who are in middle school and high school. And like you mentioned about Sophie, having that person to go in with and having those interests. One thing that's also important, we do a lot because I know we're going to start talking about the importance of educating the school because you're bringing up the bridge yeah. and that is a key way. <laughs> the other part, though, is how do we prepare our kids and give them a sense of control before they go in? So, you know, visiting the school, walking the halls, going to the playground, those are things that we as, as parents can help to to structure. But what about preparing our kids? So I specifically think of this for our middle school and high school kids. Oftentimes parents want to know, what if my child has has anxiety or has a panic attack during school? What if they're uncomfortable and they can't say something? You know, how, how do we help them to engage with teachers that are new to them? Some things that we really do a lot of work on are, one, action plans. And action plans are a way for, for kids to plan out. Where am I going today? Who am I going to see? What questions might be asked of me? And what might I need to ask of my teachers? So that's something with our middle school and teens we might work out. But there's a, 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 a co-piece a co of that that I think is important, which is a safety plan. So safety plans, I know that sounds intense. We talk about safety, but sometimes it's just the idea of if I need if I'm not in a class with a buddy, I don't know anyone yet, how how does my teacher know I need help or, or I need to talk with someone or maybe I need to go to the nurse or I need to go to the counselor's office? So a few things, walking through with your child, with your team, with your high school or whatever that may look like and walking through those type of questions and who is our point person to go to and what should teachers know that if my child needs to go to the nurse or needs to um, visit the counselor, here are some things to look for. So we might put in some nonverbal prompts. We might put a, a peer who's going to help. We also might put some questions that, that that student has on their phone that they could show or some keywords to, to chat if they're using their Chromebook during class. The counselor's aware, the teacher's aware. So sometimes we even have to prepare our kids in advance. How many of our kids that we see at Communicamp or one of the key pieces that parents want to know is, how will you ask if my child needs to go to the bathroom if they can't ask? And I think, again, this is one of those pieces of how do we help our, our children to feel in control? Same thing. Visit the bathrooms. Talk to the teachers. What how would you like to be prompted? Some of our kids know um, I, I don't want to have to hold up a sign or a symbol or show some card if no one else is showing it. But here's what I am comfortable with. And all those pieces can be sort of um, double time talking to your child about it, developing a plan, and then coming and sharing some of this with your teacher so that your child feels these are my my challenges or areas that I'm worried about. What if they don't don't see my hand raised? What if they don't see that card on my table that says I have to go to the bathroom and, and they miss it? We start to have those conversations with our teen and with our kids at home to prepare. That's giving them control. And then we move that into the education piece of school and helping the, the, the teachers to get on board to understand what really works for this child. So that's amazing. That's perfect. I love that. And what you're basically saying, which I think is going to be interesting for our listeners to take a step back is how often as parents do we think we know all that these kids need to do and say and how they need to be, you need to do this. You should do that. What I really want our listeners to do is step back and say, hey, let me look, listen, and learn from my child. Mm -hmm. What are they worried about with the start of school? And I can tell you that that awareness and really working with them on their own fears and worries, instead of what we think they should be doing or need to do, which often scares some of these kids, you need to talk to your teacher, you need to talk to your friends. If you don't answer your teacher, 
he or she won't know what you need to, you know, what, what you know. If you don't answer your friends, you're not going to have friends. I can't tell you how often I hear this. But what I want parents to do is really listen to their kids. And having worked with countless kids and teens and adults, um, you know, what I hear in terms of their worries are, who's going to be in my class? Will my, will the kids and teachers like me? Who will I sit with? Who will I eat lunch with? Who will I play with at recess? Who will I hang out with? They want to feel socially connected. They want to know those answers. So I think it's very, very important that we address those types of questions with those children and have what you call that safety plan. And in addition, what if the teacher calls on me? What if the teacher isn't properly educated or there's a substitute in and they don't know your child's baseline stage or what stage they're working on? Because we're not keeping them at the baseline. You know, the baseline is where they're starting. We're trying to obviously facilitate strategies, interventions within the school to help them progress into verbally responsive um, and initiative expressive speech. But what if the teacher calls on me? That fear, that fear that might have existed from last year where a teacher's like, you need to answer. If you don't answer, I mean, this has happened to so many kids where the teachers are asking open-ended, thought-provoking questions from day one and shutting these kids down. What if one of the kids asks me a question? Well, and you're bringing up a good point because we're really starting to talk through their their worries and the the questions that they have versus the questions parents may have. But the other piece of that is now you're starting to move into the bridge. And what if the teacher is not educated? What do we do? Well, so two parts. You mentioned what if a teacher, what if the child comes into the school year and a teacher really called on them spontaneously in front of everyone and that was uncomfortable where they weren't ready and prepared? But what about the kids who maybe that child had a teacher or maybe the accommodations or the education was don't call my child at all. So maybe that child yeah. sat all school year not being called on because the teacher thought that was a way of promoting comfort just by not bringing them into engagement or conversation. So now this year, if a teacher does try, maybe that overwhelms the child that they're being called on. So we often in our teacher educations um, do a lot of work educating teachers of what is SM, what's not, but also what you brought up was the social communication bridge. I can't say how much I think in every, you know, podcast or, you know, video training I've done, I say how much I love the bridge um, because it really serves so many purposes. One of the things I love about it is we want to prepare our teachers with education about what selective mutism is. What does it look like? So what, what might you see when your student comes But the other piece that's really important is what is SM for your specific child? We don't want to give the impression that SM is my child won't speak. So therefore, because they won't speak, then we need to over accommodate comfort and keep them nonverbal. Because as we know, many of our kids will come into communication with the right strategies and in the right place. So we don't want to give the impression that don't call my child. My child can't do these things. But look at their bridge, you know, specifically where they are, get a baseline and what we can expect. So we really want to help empower the teachers so they can bring that child into communication and know strategies to bridge them up and down when needed, because that's also going to help that child to be seen. And also to if they're having difficulty with what if I am called on in class, is it is an appropriate accommodation? Never call my child. No, we want our kids to be called on. 
but we might have to start at a different baseline, which call them when they know the answer. You know, if they're if they're confident, if it's written down, maybe call them when they're in a small group, maybe when their hand is raised, that's a good time to call. Or maybe we do one on one work to build them up before we move it into the big group. These are things that we often take into consideration when we're doing teacher education, because we there is no cookie cutter way a child presents with selective mutism. Certainly there are commonalities with all of our kids. But as you and I know, working with children with SM, every one of them may present differently. So strategies that work for one child may not be the same strategies that work for another. We really have to make it individualized. And for me, I love to empower the teachers not to feel intimidated by working with a child with SM or worried they're going to make things worse, but really give them tips and tools that they feel empowered, that they know, I know I can bring this child into communication. And if it goes well, wonderful. And if that child is a little more hesitant or not ready yet, I know I have tools to bridge down and then rebuild them as I go. Excellent points. Excellent points. Um, One thing that I want to kind of go into (laughs) based on what you just said is, The key um, concepts, um, and I call them the golden rules, some of the golden rules, we'll be doing separate podcasts on key philosophies and golden rules. You know we need to do that because that pulls it all together in terms of the understanding of SM as a social communication anxiety, not just about not speaking. Since comfort precedes communication and progress does not occur in a group, how do you recommend we build comfort and help with progression of communication. In other words, we need to build comfort and do strategies or interventions away from the group. That's the golden rule. That's what teachers need to really, really understand. What are some of the things that you tell teachers about that and how to accomplish that? Sure. So I think a a key one, and you mentioned it earlier, is um, buddy pairing. Now, whether we know some kids or don't, either way, that's going to be a helpful strategy. So one, if we want to bring comfort to where that child is right at their seat, pairing them with a familiar peer or someone someone that they're paired with and the teacher thinks is a good fit consistently is going to help. So imagine I've been hanging out with friends outside of school and I know they're going to be in some of my classes. Um, it's really important to have that that child or a few of the kids I know. I mean, oftentimes we might recommend two to three familiar friends be in a child's class. That might be an accommodation that we're requesting from the school. Why? Um, one, that's a benefit to teachers. If your child is coming in a little more comfor- comfortable into the classroom and they're sitting with their peers a little more comfortably, uh, one, you're going to have a child who might engage a little more freely right off the bat. So that's changing the culture of their comfort in the classroom. Um, two, if it is someone they can or have verbalized with, we potentially could begin to use that those children or those fellow students as a verbal intermediary, if that's a good strategy. So one, it helps us to build the comfort right away. Some of our kids aren't comfortable in the classroom. They don't move around the classroom easily. But if you pair them with a friend to move through the classroom with, to, you know, um, hand out materials with, if you pair them up to, you know, take something down to the nurse or have a peer to do a project with, that all of a sudden changes how your child feels in school. Don't we feel like that as adults when we have someone familiar to sit with or go into an event with? We feel more comfortable. So do our kids. So one one helpful way is to put them and pair them with a buddy as frequently as possible. And, and not to worry, because I think you mentioned this earlier, what if my child doesn't really know anyone? Don't worry that in the beginning of the school year, a teacher might need to pair your child up with a few friends that maybe feel like a good fit. And do it consistently, just so there's some familiarity on a daily basis. I'm always coming back to these peers. Um, 
those peers may not be the right fit as we move forward. Or maybe your child gravitates to other kids as a school year, you know, moves on and that's okay. But one quick and easy way to do that is pair with familiar buddies. Um, that's going to be important. And if we're not familiar, at least to pair them consistently in the beginning until we start to rotate them out. Um, another piece that you brought up is small groups. Hands down, small groups are needed. So if we if we're anticipating that we're going to be in a larger classroom setting and this child is going to come into communication within that big group, we know that often that does not occur. So comfort precedes communication and progress with communication often does not occur in the large group setting. It's the small group setting that we need to have in place. (laughs) I love this because it's like, yeah, exactly. These are such simple concepts, but yet so few people understand that. This is so needed, like that understanding of the small group in the room and what we call the spot, right? Sure. A lot of our kids are are aware, hyper aware, actually, they're very hyper vigilant of the larger group setting. Now, whether that's because it's uncomfortable to take a risk and communicate in front of a bigger group and they're more comfortable in the smaller group. Or sometimes our kids are sensory sensitive. The larger group feels, you know, um, more overwhelming to them versus a small group. So there's a, a, a number of reasons that small group is a better fit for many of our kids. But if they're going to take a communication risk, pulling them to the side. Um, so what does that look like? You mentioned the word the spot. What is the spot? So the spot could be a table in the back of the room. So most of our teachers have a, an area. It could be, you know, um, maybe for our younger kids, it's a book nook. It's the rug. It may be a table in the back where the teacher pulls for assessment or you know, reading time. Um, For some of our older kids, it may just be a desk towards the back of the room or the teacher's desk where it's sort of off to the side. Um, Could it be outside the classroom? Could it be in the hall? Uh, Could it be in, you know, the area of like our cubbies or closets? It's an area where there's less eyes and ears on that child where they, if they're going to take a communication risk, they feel more comfortable with less people listening and watching them take that risk. And are we Again, pairing them with a comfortable peer, potentially, to allow that to happen, or peers. So that small group time could be in the spot, that comfortable zone. But small groups happen during the day, during classes, all the time. So sometimes teachers think it has to be a carved out specific time that they work on things, and that could be. But sometimes it's when you break into pairs for math review or you break into pairs for chapter review and discussion questions or you're doing a project, you know, getting into your project groups or a reading group. All those could be small groups. The important piece is who are they paired with? So small groups are great, but it really depends on who are we paired with. I and you and I both have clients that they might be in a small group, but if they're in in a group with kids they are they're not familiar with, they don't know they're not going to be as comfortable. So that double, that double whammy of peers I'm familiar with and comfortable, possibly verbal with, and in a small group, that really bumps up that child's comfort to take communication uh, risk. Interesting. Exactly. So what do we say often? And we tell this to families all the time at Communicamp and as we're educating schools. Okay. It's fabulous that you have small groups. It's fabulous that you are doing small groups out of the room. My question that I ask and you ask all the time is, okay, what are you doing in those small groups? Who's in those small groups? What, how are you asking questions? What types yes. of questions are you asking? So, yep. yeah, if an IEP or a 504, and of course, that's a whole separate conversation about accommodations and interventions, and we're definitely going to be talking about that probably in another podcast. But it's really important that teachers are educated. Again, buddies, who those buddies are, older kids, it's the kids with interest, science class math, try to pair them and sit them with those kids, because as teachers are asking questions, they can ask questions in a way to either prompt the intermediary, prompt write and read, 
Um, it, it's just really important for comfort. But in those small groups, to know what they're working on, what stage are they facilitating? Um, and so this, the buddies, the small groups in the room, the small groups out of the room, and parent work on get-togethers outside of school, buddies outside of school, play dates outside of school, based on the age. As children age, Jen, they often resist get-togethers if they don't have that comfort, if they don't have that connection. That's why we need the school to help us. With little guys, it's easy. You know, the two moms or two dads, you know, will connect on the, you know, from school and have the kids over and the kids adapt, right? But as kids get older, that buddy process is going to be based on who those kids like. I spoke to a family recently who was fortunate. There were six kids that the child worked on all summer to have play dates with. And it was amazing because he progressed into speech with all six kids. But you know what? Three of those kids were kids he really doesn't want to get to be with. He's not really that interested. They're very disengaged from doing a play date and parent has to work really hard. Hey, those aren't the kids I'm going to focus on in school, right? So just like you have people you're more drawn to and connect with, so do our kids. So sometimes parents are like, but I'm best friends with his mother. It doesn't matter. That might be a starting point, but we have to respect our right. children's interests and who they like. So again, comfort precedes communication. Progress doesn't happen in a group. We therefore need to build comfort, do strategies away from the group through the buddy process, through get-togethers and play dates, small groups in the room, small groups out of the room, doing a lunch bunch or a friendship group, working on the interventions to help them progress across the bridge. And that statement, because you know I love it, right? Don't wait, facilitate. What does that mean for you? Don't wait, facilitate. I think what I see is uh, sometimes we come into the school setting and there is a sense of we're talking about comfort. And this is what I, mean, I think everything we talk about is really get into the details. Right. Just don't take the, the, the topic or the phrase and see it as just that, but get into the details. So we want to develop comfort with the kids. So comfort is, is nice. And one, having um, warm up time in school, that's important. But how many of our clients do we know where accommodations or maybe the understanding of SM is just give them opportunities to be comfortable and the whole school year progresses and that child doesn't make any progress? So for me, when I hear don't wait, facilitate, it's allow natural comfort, let them be comfortable. But also we have to begin to facilitate strategies early on. Believe it or not, we can build more comfort. With those strategies, it helps them engage in the classroom much easier and they do begin to feel more comfortable. So we don't want to wait. If we wait for the child's natural readiness to begin to communicate, you could be waiting their whole high school career at that point yep, until they're ready. Absolutely. So we don't want to wait that long. We want to give them a natural warm up. But as we start to see signs of readiness, signs of comfort, that's where we want to start to facilitate. And I think sometimes teachers will say, well, what am I looking for? How do I know they're comfortable? And this goes back to that, that phrase, look listen and learn. Our kids tell us a lot. So uh, I'm going to use camp just because we, we just rolled off of a camp weekend um, at CommuniCamp. And so one of the ways that we train our counselors is many kids will come into that classroom setting that we have at camp and feel um, uncomfortable. It's new, new, new counselors, new teachers, new peers, new environment. What do you look for? So as that child begins to engage in a task, right? So big, we're big on that is give tasks that Help that child come in, engage. So we're not starting off with question, answer, and direct contact, but giving them something to do, something to to either uh, play, to draw, a task to do when they first come in as they sit down. But if that child starts to make subtle eye contact or you're able to ask a yes-no question and they start to nod, 
that's a subtle sign that they're getting more comfortable. So if they're making eye contact, we often say, mirror that child. If they're looking up at you, you look back. If they're starting to look your way, turn your body a little bit more their way and engage them more. Those are those subtle signs of readiness. So for me, when I say, when I think of don't wait, facilitate, it doesn't mean get in there first thing and get cracking at asking them all kinds of questions and putting them on the spot. That's not what I mean. Allow warm up time, but then look for those opportunities as you begin to softly or subtly engage them. If they're starting to engage back, yeah, so let's not let's not wait then. Let's start facilitating. Facilitate with a buddy. Facilitate with questions. Maybe it's write something down and read it back or write it down, show me. Whatever those strategies that are for that particular child, we don't want to wait the whole school year for them to take initiative to make it happen. If our kids could do the strategies, they would do them. Obviously, they can't. So if we're waiting for them to do it all, we're going to be waiting a long time. And then we're, we're really wasting valuable time that we could help prompt and bring them into communication. Most of our kids need a pathway. Once they get comfortable, if we as the adult don't see those subtle signs of readiness to engage them and create that pathway to bring them into conversation, it's like they stay low, you know, low on the bridge, low in their engagement. Our job is to not wait for them to facilitate for themselves, but we as the adult to to jump in and help them based on their comfort and their stage. Really simple, exactly. Really simple engaging activities that everyone, every teacher, every parent should be aware of. The simple act of facilitating handing and taking, giving them roles to, uh, in the social encounter in school, handing papers out, handing a marker to a friend. Hey, Rebecca, will you give that scissors to Johnny? Johnny, give that to Sarah. Just And not focusing on that child only, but facilitating it with everyone. The simple act of handing and taking stimulates eye contact. I do this at camp with parents. I'll, I'll say, all right, I'm going to be kind of giving you some things, and I, I want you to notice something. And we do this with the counselors, yeah. and we have them hand things back and forth to each other, whether it's, you know, some food items or whether it's items on the table. And what happens inevitably is they make eye contact. They make eye contact. That simple act of handing things out, taking things, giving things, stimulates social communication. And for some, the irony in this, that may be just enough as they start to engage, make eye contact, and they begin to actually communicate, even if it's through sounds for young children and they're, you know, testing the waters, as I call it, or it sets the stage. And some children, just the act of writing it and the time to process what they're writing, why don't you write that down? And then the child naturally reads it. That kind of wait five to seven seconds, not rushing, not staring the child down, avoiding direct eye contact. These simple strategies are just so powerful for most, if not all children, asking questions that are choice where they hear the last answer is correct. This or that. Do you want is the answer this or that with the right answer second wait time? Um, no answer. This or that. Tell Rebecca. Repeat with that eye contact. All of these simple strategies can be very, very you know, powerful. Um, so that leads me to how, you know, how do you recommend educating the school? There's some schools that are, you know, not ready to be educated. They think they know everything there is to know. We had a child with selective mutism. We're good to go. That sometimes makes my, I don't want to, I mean, it's going to sound a little abrupt, but my blood curdle. Because just because they had a child with selective mutism doesn't mean that they know how to properly accommodate and provide interventions. Sure. So, so how do you recommend this? So I, you know, I, I love the school education piece. That's one of my favorite parts of, of working at the Smart Center. Um, and there's a few reasons that one to, to address your question. 
some of our, our staff do, do have experience with children with selective mutism. I often in a school consultation, one of the first things I do ask is, you know, raise your hand, um, if you've had students with SM in the past. And you do often get some who raise their hand. And I love that because one, they can, they can give some experience of, what that child was like. And for those who haven't had any experience, I love that too, because now we, we get to educate and give them some really concrete tools. But both of those, those different types of, um, responses are great. One, because just because you have a child who had SM in the past, that's a good foundation. But as we know, all children with SM present very, very differently. And so strategies that work for one child's presentation of SM versus another, um, may not work. So for instance, we often will see that we have a child who um, comes to school and maybe they need, let's let's say, sound work or the ritual sound approach. And that's a specific strategy that we use with kids who present more speech phobic. Um, but, a, but a family or a teacher rather will say, but we've had kids with SM before and here are the strategies we use for them. But those may not work readily for a child who presents needing that particular sound work. So Knowing one child is not enough. And I think educators, I usually will present it and say, just like all kids are different and they have different learning needs. Some are visual learners, some are auditory learners. Children with SM are different too. Some need certain strategies versus others. Some need to be sort of low, you know, low energy, nonchalant, and others need more facilitation, more opportunity in a different way. So, I hear you with it makes your blood curdle because sometimes it, it's dismissive. Like we've had, we've had kids with SM in the past for good, but really knowing, I, I'll go back to the social communication bridge. It is very important to know where that child's communication lies. What is their baseline? And, and the reason I say this in terms of educating, how many teachers have I consulted with that often will confuse Let's say stage two and stage three. Stage two is the ability to use, let's say, as one strategy in the transitional stage to use a another person as a verbal intermediary. A whisper buddy, let's say, is the term for like a younger child. Sometimes teachers will say, oh, yes, they're whispering to me. They're whispering to other kids in the classroom. So they're in stage two. They confuse that just because you're using the term whisper buddy, a buddy that you can relay, be a conduit for communication, they view that as that's where the child is whispering to everybody. So they're in stage two, but really low voice whispering is stage three. So oftentimes just doing simple review of the bridge that if your child laughs that loud, says, mm-hmm, or mm-mm, those are even, those, those are subtle signs of readiness. They're in stage two. They're making utterances. How can we then mold that and use that for leverage into stage three? So for me, educating teachers to know that you know, is, is your child, let's say, I'll give you an example. I had a client, I just mentioned this in Communicamp, who the um, teacher thought our client did not like this teacher and was not making any progress. We went and looked at the bridge. That teacher realized that student was going Mm-mm, to answer questions and laughing audibly to that teacher. That's stage two work right there. Here, this, this teacher thought this child was not engaged, only in the beginning of stage one. So that just simple education of the bridge showed that teacher wow, they are engaging, they are communicating, what can I do next? So sometimes I feel like once you educate staff and give them tools for empowerment and they try those tools, I feel like most of our teachers really want to help our kids. They either don't have enough support or resources um, or just not enough education and education specifically to help this student. We can all give general education about SM. There's a lot of really great information out there, but it can be very overwhelming for a teacher to take that general information and apply it to your specific 
child. So our our um, training sessions really come into let's teach the bridge let's track where your child is on the bridge or what you might expect based on last year their ability where they can probably get to this year and then let's let's walk through the strategies to make that happen what are those strategies that are that are going to work well for this child in your classroom and i do feel that most teachers once they're on board and learning those strategies and they start to try them out teachers get excited it works this is working this is we're we're moving along now and then there there's more of a for lack of a better word a buy-in a buy-in of these strategies work what can i do next yeah no that those are excellent points and i think one of the reasons i was mentioning about my concern when someone says we've had a child is like you said in the beginning of you know when when we're doing an education we want to understand what their understanding is of yep. selected mutism because i worked with a school recently who when we talked about selected mutism, all that teacher did was focus on the child not speaking. In fact, oh. the particular teacher mentioned, you know, I don't get it. It seems like she's being a bit defiant. I mean, I see her talking to her friend on the playground or as she's walking into school with her parent. As soon as she sees me, she doesn't talk. And it's like I've offered her, you know, extra recess time to talk to me. And it's it just like I think she mentioned the word talk five times in like less than 30 seconds. And what I did is I had to back up and say, hey, listen, humor me here. Just like I start at camp and I'm like, all right, what's everybody's view on selected mutism? They need to see it as a social communication anxiety disorder. So as we're preparing children, teens for school, that's great. We can prepare our kids all we want. But if the teachers, if the school staff doesn't have the right training and understanding, it's almost like it's just not going to work. And so we have to make sure that they understand the stages and that if the child is not yet verbal with the teacher or peers and they're 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 nonverbal what is their baseline stage are they able to use a peer as a verbal intermediary can the parents transition let's say a child is having a play date at sure. home on the playground in the empty classroom transition so the child begins talking to a peer in a very stepwise and for some kids it's very much about um it's very much about their awareness to what's going sure. on so giving them that control so I think it's very important that we understand we have an understanding of their understanding and train yep. them on the bridge and where the child is. And also one thing you mentioned about some strategies or interventions working better for some children is that goes back to the whys. I mean, we have 30 to 40 percent of kids that may have an underlying speech and language issue. Their ability to initiate, elaborate, express themselves is limited. So how can we ask them open ended, thought provoking sure. questions, even when they're verbal? We need to be able to prompt the right and read, give them more opportunities to respond, wait the five to seven seconds. Um, they'll do well with scripts, some of these speech and language kids, kids with processing when the teacher's giving audit, audible directions. Maybe the child is getting anxious. So we need to know why is that child anxious? What are some of those whys that are kind of causing more anxiety within the school setting that we need to accommodate? And you know, I do want to briefly touch on a few things. Um, we talked about educating the school. We talked about um, the importance of preparing the child. And I think um, one thing that I'd want to make sure of is that as we are working with kids, especially older kids, their awareness to what we're doing, the goals we're working on in school, their acknowledgement, their assessment of this process and knowing what they're doing, that's important. But since accommodations and interventions, Jen, are so critical for success, in terms of comfort and progression of communication, just kind of a quick overview, because we're going to go into another podcast sure. on 504s, IEPs, or as I call, SHMIEPs, which are accommodations and, and 
interventions, how do you determine, just kind of in a quick summary, what type of plan you recommend? Because unless there's accommodations and interventions with these kids, they're just going to make limited progress, and we know that. So a couple of things that I'll, I'll say, one is that accommodations are important. Now, I often will speak in parent sessions about this and the need for accommodations and, and why it's important to request. And, and a simple a simple example, um, a client of ours um, had gone to um, a private school. They were doing great with accommodating what was needed. Um, it wasn't a formal accommodation, right? So nothing documented. It wasn't in what we call a 504 or an IEP. Um, however, they had some things that the parents presented and the school was willing to accommodate. However, it was last year. So during that time, we had a lot of teachers out and, and they were mixing teachers around for coverage and substitutes and what have you. So this child was having lunch bunches. So a lunch bunch for this child was that the counselor was pulling my client with a few of her friends and they would get together in a group and that counselor would facilitate activities to work on my child's level, my client's level of, on the bridge and, and work on growing her communication. But guess what? During the pandemic, because we had nothing really concrete in place, no, no official plan, right, that that had been established. It was just sort of here are some things that would be helpful, some tips um, over time that the counselor had to be pulled in other areas. Months went by and that lunch bunch stopped. And that lunch bunch was really important. It, only, it helped to keep my child, my client verbal, but also helped me to rotate in other students from the classroom and add more kids to uh, this, this client's ability to verbalize across the classroom. And that got taken away because the counselor was needed in other areas. Why do I bring that up? Because oftentimes a 504 or an IEP, when we put accommodations in place, um, there is a legal document. It is um, within the realm that the school has to accommodate. Um, there's a, it's, it's signed by a team um, and agreed upon by the district. And so, therefore, um, we can hold the school accountable for these strategies and accommodations. Um, so that's why I, I like requesting a 504 at minimum or an IEP if it's needed. But what gets put in an IEP or 504, we do a lot of talk about this. You, may, you mentioned IEP, SHMIEP, and I'll, just to speak to that, why are we saying that? Anyone can have a 504 or an IEP, and really that's an accommodation plan where the district or the school will put together strategies that will work well for a child with SM. Um, during many of our training sessions, we show a sample of a 504 plan, and we show what's, what's right with it and where it where it fails, right? Where are the pieces that um, we just need to add? And so, the 504 and the IEP, what works best? There are certain accommodations that are great. So, for instance, it's always great to put an accommodation of, if possible, can we know who the teachers are going to be ahead of time so that the, we can begin to schedule those meetings? Um, sometimes schools will say we can't give you that information. Um, if we can get it at a certain point, then at least we know who the teacher is going to be, and we can begin to schedule those meetings before the school year begins, before the parent nights. Um, oftentimes, schools will also allow a parent parent or family to pick the teacher. If there's four teachers, we might say, which, which teacher would be a good fit, their, their demeanor, their personality for my child? That can sometimes be added in. Pairing them with familiar kids and buddies, meeting the teacher ahead of time, um, having an ability to write things down if they need to, not being penalized if they can't verbalize right away, but how do we implement the strategies that get put into place? So what I find is that 
an IEP or a 504 plan, when, when I'm reviewing it, to me feels like a skeleton plan. And what I mean by that is there's some basic accommodations that are good for all kids with selective mutism, but that doesn't necessarily show you the steps to progress. So oftentimes in our meetings, we might go through a 504 or an IEP and say, great, like you mentioned earlier, it's great to have a buddy next to you, or it's great to have a lunch bunch, a group that you can meet with every day. But what do you do in that group? What do you do with that peer? What do you do with that pullout time that you're meeting with? Great that your child gets counseling, you know, once a week, but what do we do in the counseling session? And our IEPs and 504s, we start to dive into them in more detail, which I usually will say we want to add an addendum. And the addendum to that is what are the strategies that are going to be helpful to, to bridge them in into communication and build their comfort? No, excellent points. Really great points. And IEPs tend to be for kids that have more kind of more severe social communication challenges. It's affecting their academics maybe more. Um, they may have some more comorbidities like the whys of SM, speech and language, where they need speech and language services, um, OT, sensory processing disorder, learning challenges. Tends to be that the more challenges the child has surrounding their social communication, uh, specifically in the area of academics, may be more um, of an IEP situation in a public school, where a 504 tends to be, I call it, a more minor version that allows for those accommodations, interventions within a private school setting. And we do see families that kids go to a private school, you know, meeting with the school and making sure it's the right fit. Are they willing to do the accommodations? I tend to see in the preschool environments, um, they are more willing to do accommodations. But if a child is like, you know, eight years old and they go to a private school, are they able to do accommodations interventions? Some schools in private are not able to do it, but just maybe that small environment, the way the teacher teaches, the whole philosophy within the school may be perfect for a child, even without a formal plan, because it's done like behind the scenes. So it is about making sure it's the right fit um, if it is a private school and that the school is willing to help. And often in our trainings, we'll give them like five bullet points to work on and then reconnect you know, reconnect again. Um, I think one thing I would want to talk about briefly as well before we end this is that, you know, more than we would think, kids have some bathroom and eating issues, and that has to be included in accommodations and intervention plans. Any kind of, you know, recommendations for kids with some bathroom issues or eating issues you just want to touch on in this kind of preparing for back to school? Sure. I think one piece that is important is, from an education standpoint, if, if you're not educating your teachers about bathroom or eating, I'm going to throw both of those in. And you do a really nice um, <clears throat> training on the quad, which talks about sleep, eating, toileting, and behaviors, because all those things may impact our kids with SM as well. Um, from a toileting standpoint, I always sort of back it up and I'll say, you know, oftentimes our teachers and we as parents sometimes focus on school as we're not talking. The talking is not happening. But we need to pull away from that a bit and that look, listen, learn, pull back and look and say, what else is my child having challenges doing? If you think about it, you know, for a child to raise their hand to go to the bathroom or to show a note or show a symbol or just to get up and go to the bathroom, in reality, that's not a verbal task. Verbalization is not needed to get up and just go on your own. It's not you don't have to verbalize to show a hand signal or to hold up a card. But yet many of our kids are not doing those things either. 
So it's not just about verbalizing. There is some difficulty with initiating a need, even if it's not non-verbally. Now, that's not for all. Some of our kids can do that. They will use a card. They'll use a symbol. They'll use a non-verbal means to communicate. But what about those who won't? So we have to look at SM as more than just the talking aspect and get underneath it and see that even non-verbal tasks for our kids and, and being engaged in the classroom and advocating for themselves can be hard. So remember we talked about a safety plan or action plan. Those pieces are important as we come back and say, what are some things we need to work on? Um, I love to meet with schools and parents to say, what are our worries about toileting and really start from the ground up because every child is different. If it is a, if it's a, let's say a younger child coming into um, elementary school and they've not used those facilities before, I usually ask the question of, please ask your teacher, is there a bathroom in the classroom? Or is there a bathroom in the hall that you're going to be using? Because that could seem very different for kids. So knowing where the bathrooms are, can we come in advance and see them? Can we come in advance and use the bathroom? Not during the class day, but off peak time where there's no one there. Many of our kids have a hard time using the bathroom um, where others might be listening, waiting. Um, so the more we get comfortable with visiting it, seeing it, that actually allows us to ask some of the questions that you mentioned earlier, Dr. E, is what's worrying them, right? So we might go into a bathroom. I had a client who mom took the child into the bathroom and looked around and it turned out, yes, the automatic flushing toilet was, was scary and the hand dryer or the vent that, that so they turned on the light that was overwhelming to them, made them feel scared in the bathroom versus, um, a child who felt like they, they couldn't pull the, the large handle down and pull it hard enough and they were worried they'd get locked in the bathroom and no one would be able to help them. So we might look at little kids and say, what are the worries you have in the bathroom and what's, what's bothering you? What accommodate? accommodation can we put in place automatic flushing toilets we can put a sticky note over top of the sensor that's one way for the child to feel more comfortable so it's not going to flush on them right away um, we don't have to use the sink or the automatic hand dryers in the bathroom we can come out of the bathroom and use sometimes a classroom sink to wash our hands and use a paper towel or have paper towels in the bathroom those are things that are simple accommodations that we can work on um, for some of our older kids who may not use the bathroom at school, it's maybe it's the, the, the multi-stall bathroom is an uncomfortable place for them to go. Can we recommend them coming to a different one-stall bathroom closer to the, the office or the nurse's office? So sometimes we can make other accommodations. Maybe it's taking a buddy with them to just be there so they don't feel by themselves or alone or if they did need help. For instance, one of our older middle school clients didn't want to go to the bathroom themselves because what if they were in the stall and there was no toilet paper in the bathroom. How would they let someone know if it's all unfamiliar people coming in and out of the bathroom? And that might feel embarrassing. But having a friend come with them, they at least knew they had a friend who they could verbalize to ask. Now, all these are very different accommodations, but there are things that we put in place to help with toileting issues. And then another piece to be thinking about is if your child is not using the bathroom in school, we don't want to assume we know the, the reason they're not using the bathroom. And that's where conversation with your child, with your teachers is important. Many of our kids will not use the bathroom in school, not because there's any difficulty using the bathroom, but they may not want to use the facilities because or they may not use the, the facilities because they're not eating and drinking and eating and drinking is sometimes they won't eat or drink in school either um, because they don't want to have to use the restroom. So it actually ties into eating issues as well. Um, some of our kids may have other challenges with toileting and whether it's they're sensory sensitive to the noises in the room or they're sensitive to people hearing them um, versus I just I need to be prompted to go but I can't initiate to ask to go. Those are all different pieces that we talk about with our families and teachers. No two children are alike, and that's why 
we really that's why that's why education is so key and education for your child is for me the priority i don't want to give just general strategies to each individual family or school i'm working with but i want to take the general ideas of things that we can do preparation and giving your child control is always important Talk about what what hand signal, what's the the nonverbal means they can use. Help teachers to know to prompt it if the child's not doing it on their own. If they're not initiating it, help prompt it. But as we start to move deeper into it, we really want to get your child on board and the teachers on board to understand what your child's specific needs are in that area and work. Maybe it is a chart, and we chart the strategies little by little to help them be able to use the bathroom on their own. Maybe it's a parent that comes in mid-afternoon and meets them in the school office bathroom, and they begin to go to the bathroom, and we wean away from that and fade out. It might be different for every child, but these are the type of things that we, we talk about and educate about. No, excellent points. As always, Jen, as always, <laughs> you always have such amazing um, information to share there's something called shy bladder syndrome or pariuresis, P-A-R-U-R-E-S-I-S. I mentioned that because, you know, a nice percentage of kids with SM have social anxiety. So that shy bladder syndrome, being uncomfortable going around others, um, you know, is, is not uncommon. And so is it that reason and that kind of solo stall? That concept of kind of comfort precedes communication, progress doesn't happen in a group. How often do parents or, you know, don't go to the bathroom with their child in school as they're even walking the halls, it's almost like there's always groups of kids in the bathroom. So that kind of group setting of every time I'm in the bathroom, there's others there. That often could be just that. So it is important as parents are walking the halls and preparing for back to school that they go in the classroom. I'm not in the classroom, in the bathroom. You don't want to go in the classroom. And and let me share something, too, which we sometimes don't see it this way, but – there is so much that our families can do to prepare for these things at home. So, for instance, if we look, listen, and learn, many of our parents will say, my, my child goes to the bathroom independently at home. No accidents, doesn't ask to go. They just take themselves to the bathroom. They do all of the steps that are necessary, and they're done. But sometimes we have to ask, how are they at other people's houses and relatives' houses? And what about when we're out in the real world? Right. How many of our parents would say, oh, yes, I go into the, the multi-stall bathroom with them or they're in the bathroom with me when I go. I don't leave them by themselves. If you think about it, many of our elementary school age kids are always with somebody in the bathroom. It's rare that we send them to a store or a restaurant and say, go by yourself. So why would we think in school that they could be totally independent of those things when they're used to having a buddy? And don't get me started on bathrooms. I often joke in camp about just the bathroom issues I have, not me personally, but the the the, what I, the issues I have is yeah, generally. Yeah, do share with. your bathroom issues. Do is share. This, is this the time and place for that? Um, I really, I I do have um, problems with the way we view. Okay, you're bringing up comfort perceived communication, the way we view toileting. How many of us are not comfortable? In a large bathroom setting, if you think about a large multi-stall bathroom, there are the lights are on, the vents are on, uh, toilets are flushing through each stall. There's talking, there's crying, there's kids, kids are you know on the doors. If you think about how much noise can be happening and the chaotic feel of sensory stimuli with noise, how relaxing is a multi-stall bathroom to come and do your physical your physical task, right? Going to the bathroom has to be a relaxing piece. Think about our younger ones who are going through toilet training. We want them to feel comfortable and in control and relax while they're learning to um, use use the toilet versus, you know, transitioning from diapers or pull-ups. And we want to create a relaxing environment. Then we take them into 
you know, bathrooms that are multi-stall or noisy and we think they should be just as relaxed. It does take time and practice. And one thing I like to share with teachers and parents is don't get overly frustrated with that process. It can take time and practice, but if we kind of back ourselves up, find out where some of the discomfort is with that child and we can work strategies at home in stores and restaurants, and then we can start to move it into the school, you'll have a child who's much more confident in their ability to to use the restroom or to facilitate their communication. No, you're you're making a great point. And again, look, listen, and learn. Let the child let you know what it is. It's not what you necessarily think sometimes. I had a child who felt like they were going to fall into the bathroom. That's what their issue was. No, Nobody even knew. They just were like, doesn't go in school, doesn't go in school. We realized the child was a tiny child. She was a second grader. She was a very small child. And every time she sat on the bathroom, on the toilet, she thought she was going to fall in. So guess what? A simple of had a portable foldable in a bag because she didn't want to bring attention. Toilet seat sat on the toilet and boom, she went. That's all it took for that child. Now, for some kids, we have to chart it. Mom's in the toilet stall. Mom steps out. Yada, sure. yada, yada. And you just check it because we're all about control. So sometimes it is more about that. And, you know, we can go on and on and we'll be talking more about bathroom issues in our quad episode. But the eating issue, again, sensory sensitive, social anxiety. They're the two big ones that we see with yep. eating issues, bringing attention, not being able to ask for help to open things. So giving food items that can be in bags the child can simply open. Kind of the act of eating. You know, some of our kids will put a, like a book in front of their face. So that's a reality. Are they socially anxious and they're not comfortable eating around others? That's not give them a sticker and or give them a reward for eating. They are not comfortable. That's where lunch bunch or with like a one buddy or the parent comes in, snacks, um, time in a room without others around, that kind of small group out of the room. Like what is the reason for their eating issues? And for some kids, just the act of, you know, maybe a picnic in the school when nobody's around after school, that's before right. school. In the summer, getting them used to eating. Sometimes the nutritional drinks, Jen, there's some great nutritional drinks. That might be enough for some children. Just the act of, you know, drinking a, you know, a nutritional drink is the nutrition they need to get through the day because they're not ready to chew. And I always say use the diet used for an offset stomach where it's soft items, liquidy items, soft items, puddings, yogurt might be much easier than cracking down on nuts and granola that make the child feel uncomfortable. So sure. again, that eating issue situation and making sure the child has nutrients, but you brought up a great point of some children that are not comfortable using the bathroom won't eat and drink in school because they know it makes them go to the bathroom. Right. So we have to really accommodate these in accommodation plans. If the child has um, some of these issues, um, you know, some of these kids are, I just want to just divert for a second on bus rides something that a lot of kids do and there's kids that aren't taking the bus and this can be kind of rough. Any suggestions for parents who really need their child to take the bus? Sure. So a couple of things. One, if your school district does um, like a ride along bus ride um, at the start of the school year, do try to be part of that. It, it really allows our kids to hop on a bus with a sibling and parent and they get to ride the bus together, um, which is great before the school year begins. Not all districts do that, but if they do, I would highly recommend that. Um, other pieces that I think are really important, too, is um, one, this is a buddy process. Uh, if we know a buddy who's going to be on that bus, it is very important, just like we might in an accommodation plan have um, preferential seating. It should be very important that our child on the bus have preferential seating as well um, with a buddy or a sibling in the beginning until they get really comfortable and they know who maybe some of their classmates are. So we can pair them up and be have a buddy process. Um, 
I can tell you, and, and I have a client who, um, in the beginning, uh, their child would not ride the bus. Uh, but they were able to get on the bus with a with a with a peer sibling and ride um, with the idea that mom followed the bus to school and mom would ride behind the bus for that child to feel comfortable. Not the whole school year, but it, t- it but it took a couple weeks. And then little by little, mom was able to pull back um, from that. Um, the other piece, too, is sometimes schools will allow a child to come onto the school bus um, when, for instance, if I'm dropping my child off in the morning um, and the buses are letting go, um, sometimes schools will allow your child to hop on the bus just to say hello to the bus driver and see the bus empty um, to acclimate them. So we're just approximating, getting them comfortable with seeing the bus, what it looks like, um, how it feels when you're on the bus and seated. And you can arrange that time if that would work for your your child um, to have that opportunity to see the bus. So having a buddy is a big one. The other piece, too, is educating your bus driver about your child with SM. Sometimes bus drivers aren't always privy to your children's 504 plan or accommodations. They don't always understand um, that your child may not be able to communicate. So even having something nonverbal, um, like a card or something that the bus driver has along with that buddy would be really important so that if there was a question or a concern that um, that child has something to show my address, what bus number I'm on, um, you know, who my buddy is. That's really important for bus drivers. They're not always in the know of all the details that the teacher Teacher or administration is. Yeah, no, excellent, excellent points. Um, I, I there's a museum in Philadelphia uh, that has a bus in it, and one of the things I suggest when families are like coming for intensives or even from the Philadelphia area, go there, visit that bus at that museum, yeah, and you know, really kind of get to know these buses. And also, I've had families that um, have started out where they actually follow the bus to school. And the teacher meets them right off the bus. That's work for some of the kids that are. um, And also knowing those buddies and if it's a sibling, where they're going to sit is like, you know, you mentioned all of these things are um, really, really important. Um, I think we've done great with kind of preparing for back to school, uh, meeting the teacher, going with a one on one buddy, with a sibling, bringing a bag of things to engage with the teacher in a comfortable nonchalant a book about me i usually say bring a photo album of your summer let the teacher ask questions educate the teacher with an about my child before they even meet the teacher the child so that the the child the teacher knows the baseline stages just that comfort building is you know really really important um sometimes meeting teachers outside of school is important sometimes they can meet on a playground sometimes away from the school there's lots of ways to kind of get that connection the buddy process going getting those accommodations and interventions in place, the education for the teachers, really accommodating their whys of SM, knowing their baseline stages and what they're going to facilitate. There's just so much to help prepare for back to school. Um, But there's, you know, so many things we could talk about, and we're going to do future episodes um, on podcast about accommodations, interventions, IEPs, 504s, SHMIEPs. (laughs) That's not a real term, listeners. That's just (laughs) my term for it really doesn't matter as long as they have an official accommodation intervention plan. Um, an episode I'm looking forward to doing with you would be challenges within school. So sure. we'll get to that over the course of the fall. Um, I encourage um, our listeners to um, to go to our website, selectedmutismcenter.org. Um, go to the resource page. We have a lot of resources. The Summer Vacation and Back to School Guide, it's an ebook or a hard copy, has a ton of information. It's um, low cost, but the costs go to the Selected Mutism Research Institute. The Ideal Classroom Setting is another book I wrote that, again, is great to keep in your child's uh, school's library, share with teachers, keep it for yourself. There's a lot of great suggestions in there. 
I love the back to school interview questions. We can, we have that also on our website. Um, any last minute comments you want to give to our listeners before we end this wonderful episode? Absolutely. One is that I know that for many of the families we work with and schools we work with, this is an overwhelming time of year. A lot of uh, parents feel very anxious of, did we make gains last year? Are we losing them? Did our child regress? And will my teacher be able to work through these things with my my child this year? Um, One thing I always like to share is you are better equipped with tools this year than you were last year. And so you're going into the school year differently with more information. If you're new to SM and you're picking up on these podcasts, um, we're sharing a lot of different information. That can feel overwhelming, too. Sometimes education and information is great, and other times it can feel really overwhelming. What I would share is um, take a breath. I want parents to really take a breath this school year um, and Use the social communication bridge. That's one of the resources on our page um, to help, you know, share that with with teachers so they can begin to understand and just look, listen, learn. Let's get a baseline. Let's get a baseline of where we are, because then we know where we're working towards this school year. And know that from our office standpoint, um, we offer a lot of school trainings and consultations, and we're here to help families who need that educational help um, and guidance. Um, no matter where they, they live across the country, we're here to do that, along with the resources that we have. So take a breath. Use your bridge. Use the resources at hand and, and know you're better prepared than you were um, before you, before the school year so you have way more in your in your toolbox with your teachers to educate yeah and it's amazing the teachers need education but once you do a general training and working if you have an outside clinician having them train your teachers is really really important sometimes we'll work with families that aren't necessarily working at the smart center we'll do a general training but again make sure if you're seeing another clinician that they are working with your school i can't emphasize that enough do not rely on your child's progress alone in treatment to then carry over on its own. It's don't wait, facilitate. Those teachers need to understand. Substitutes need to understand that you don't, you know, one bad experience can cause a lot, a lot of regression. That general training, and then we call it check-ins after that, um, for maybe, you know, 20, 30 minutes of just kind of every, like, two months or so, they kind of make sure they're, if ever they reach a standstill, I always say if your child is going 10 days and not making any progress, you need to step back and figure out why. So again, talk to your treatment professional because your child should be making steady, steady progress in school. A child should not stay stagnant. I can't emphasize enough. That means that they are not accommodating properly. They're not providing the necessary interventions. Children should make steady progress within school and teachers need an education. So thank you, listeners. I am hoping you got a lot of information from this episode. Um, It was my honor to be with Jennifer, who I absolutely have the utmost respect for and love, love, love as a person in general. So thank you, Jennifer, so much for this time. Thanks for having me on. and Happy school year, everyone. (laughs) Have a great day. Thank you so much for this incredible opportunity to share my knowledge. For more information, please go to selectivemutismcenter.org.